learn how to see and share Jesus from all of Scripture, well, learn with us at the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Welcome to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. On today's episode, Jason Redberg walks us through what Christ Centered preaching is and how to apply it to the book of Job. This is one of the talks at our last conference that took place in Glenrothes, Scotland. We hope it will be helpful to you as you seek to see Jesus and share Jesus from all of Scripture. Good morning. It is wonderful to be with you. Uh, there is a handout for this session. If you got that on on your way in. I hope you did. If not, uh, maybe you can find one somewhere. But there are a number of significant quotes I'm going to share with you that I want you to be able to see. Uh, I think you'll be able to focus on those a little bit better. Uh, my name is Jason Redberg. I uh, pastor Redeemer Bible Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota, uh, and also serve on the board of the Pillar Network and I uh, love being part of events like this where we come together and we talk about Christ-centered preaching. So uh, ladies that are here, it's wonderful to have you here. I am not ignoring you when I address, address primarily brothers. I want you to know that. I'm very happy that you're here. Uh, but uh, even as I speak, I think you'll notice I'm primarily thinking about uh, preachers in this session so just want to say that before we start. Uh, let me pray quickly, and then I'll explain what I'm going to do in this first session. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, an opportunity to come together uh, and to look into your word, to uh, not only look into your word, but to think carefully about how we communicate your word, uh, primarily how we communicate it to your people. We want to make Christ known, and we want to do that accurately. Uh, so would you give us grace today that we would listen well and that you would teach us? Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. With this first session of the day, I'm going to uh, open with a brief survey of what we mean when we use the terminology of Christ-centered expositional preaching, just to make sure we're all on the same page. So let me offer some clarifying definitions and explanations of those terms that we're going to then build on all throughout the day. So what is expository preaching or teaching? Australian theologian Peter Adams claims that the mere act of preaching itself is the explanation and application of the word in the assembled congregation of Christ. So preaching happens when the word of God is explained and applied to the people of God by those called by God to the task of heralding his word. But what makes preaching expositional. Listen to how J.I. Packer answers this question. Expository preaching is the preaching of the man who knows Holy Scripture to be the living word of the living God and who desires only that it should be free to speak its own message to sinful men and women who therefore preaches from a text 
And in preaching, his whole aim is to show his hearers what the text is saying to them about God and about themselves. So we open up a text of scripture and we expose the meaning of the text. The great English pastor Charles Simeon wrote, my endeavor is to bring out of scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I must never speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the spirit in the passage I am expounding. So even as we think about Christ-centered preaching today, we want to focus on that, what is in the text, and then exposing what is there, not imposing something on it. So brothers, the goal of expository preaching is to open the Bible and expose the true meaning of the text so that your listeners will hear from God. So we see a glimpse of this in Nehemiah, don't we? If you have your Bible, and I hope you do at an event like this, quickly turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. The people of God gathered to hear the word of God. And what did the Levites, what do they do when Ezra reads the scriptures aloud? Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is the job of a faithful preacher. Open the Bible, read the Bible, explain the Bible, and then trust the Holy Spirit to bring understanding to the people. This is our task every week as we enter the pulpit. Read the text and then give the sense of what it means and work hard to do it in a way that your people will understand. That's the Christ-centered and clear. Make it as much as you can accessible and understandable to your people. Now, in this conference, we're not simply concerned with expositional preaching, but Christ-centered exposition. So what do we mean when we use the phrase Christ-centered? And I should have warned you at the beginning, I'm going to fly through this material, uh, given the times of the schedule. Uh, I'm going to go as quickly as I can, and we all know that what we really want to hear is Jeff Hay talk about the Song of Solomon. So... Uh, Let me continue to work through this. I hope you can keep up. What do we mean when we use that phrase, Christ-centered? First, Christ-centered exposition is more than mentioning Jesus in the sermon. It's more than mentioning Jesus in the sermon. Two, Christ-centered exposition is more than a gospel appeal at the end of the sermon. You should mention Jesus. I would encourage you to give a gospel appeal. But Christ-centered exposition is more than this. In fact, Edmund Clowney said this, Christ-centered exposition takes account of the full drama of redemption and its realization or fulfillment in Christ. 
Here's how Brian Chapel explains this very important concept. You have this on the sheet. Christ-centered exposition of Scripture does not require us to unveil depictions of Jesus by mysterious alchemies of allegory or typology. Rather, it identifies how every text functions in furthering our understanding of who Christ is, what the Father sent him to do, and why. The goal is not to make a specific reference to Jesus magically appear from every camel track of Hebrew narrative or every metaphor of Hebrew poetry leading to allegorical errors, but rather to show how every text contributes to the unfolding revolution of the grace of God that culminates in the person and work of Christ. So that's a definition that you should return to often and meditate on what Chapel is saying there and, and really think about that as a grid for your Bible preaching and teaching. Now, brothers, why should you embrace Christ-centered interpretation and practiced Christ-centered exposition? First, because we're Christians. I mean, think about Matthew 28. Think about Romans 1, 16, Colossians 1, 27 through 29. We proclaim Jesus to make everyone mature in Christ. So here's a brief test to employ. When you're looking at your sermon or your Bible lesson, could you teach that lesson in a synagogue or a liberal church? If so, how is it helping you present fellow members mature in Christ? That is your goal, after all. That's what you're aiming to do. In the book Saving Eutychus, the authors say this, just about the worst thing that can happen when we finish preaching is that someone will walk out the door of the church buoyed by their own resolve to try harder. Right, that's the result of a non-Christian message. Two, why should we embrace Christ-centered interpretation, practice Christ-centered exposition? Because it's the New Testament pattern. It's the New Testament pattern. So let me pose two quick questions here. Question number one, how did Jesus interpret the Bible? Think about John 5, 39. Think especially about Luke 24, verse 27, and then 44. In fact, in verse 44, there's reference to the three parts of the Hebrew scriptures, law, prophets, and writings. And we find that Christ is everywhere in those. Jesus himself believed that. So Tim Keller says in his book on preaching, the Bible is in the end a single great story that comes to a climax in Jesus Christ. So the first question, how did Jesus interpret the Bible? Question number two, how did the apostles interpret the Bible? Think about Acts 26. 
verses 22 and 23, Paul before Agrippa says, I'm not saying anything new, just rehearsing what Moses and the prophets wrote. I love what John Calvin says here. In order that Christ may be made known to us through the gospel, it is therefore necessary that Moses and the prophets should go before, before us as guides to show us the way. So again, this is not something someone came up with outside of scripture, but this is what we learn when we study Jesus and the apostles. How did they understand the scriptures and how did they teach the scriptures? So why should we embrace a Christ-centered interpretation and practice Christ-centered exposition? Because we're Christians, because of the New Testament pattern, and then finally, because transformation is the result of seeing Jesus and loving him. And that's what we're aiming at when we're preaching. We want our people to be transformed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, transformation comes from beholding the glory of the Lord, which explains then 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Right? If, if that's the aim, if that's the goal, then it makes sense that Paul would say, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That makes sense, right? That's, that's what you would do if you're trying to accomplish what we find in 2 Corinthians 3. So we sin because we love sin and we stop sinning when we learn to love Jesus more than our sin. We learn to love him more when we see how he has loved us. 1 John 4, 19, then his love controls us. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. So an incredibly important question every preacher must answer, is the Bible basically about me or basically about Jesus? And then which does my teaching reflect? So now, exposition, Christ-centered exposition, how do we do Christ-centered interpretation? So we need to know how to interpret the scriptures so that we might preach them well. Well, one of the ways we interpret and teach the scriptures in a Christ-centered manner is by understanding typology. Again, chapel warns against the abuse of something like typology, but how do we accurately and appropriately understand it? And this will bring us into Job. So let me give you a definition. You have it on your sheet. It's a lengthy definition, uh, but it's wonderful. Typology is the way that God used history to bring his promises to life. God's plan of redemption, brought to its fullness in the work of Christ, was not carried through history on words of prophecy alone, 
but touched down in the life and experience of God's people. As particular individuals and events illustrated and animated the promises and provisions of God throughout redemptive history. More specifically, the person and work of Jesus Christ was imprinted on the history that led to his incarnation through people and events that were invested with prophetic meaning by God, offering glimpses of the coming Savior and reassuring God's people of the promise of his coming. Now, brothers, it is key that we understand typology as the Bible's own method of using people, places, events, or institutions to foreshadow a greater reality to come. Right? This, again, is not something we're imposing, but it's something we see in the text. In fact, the word typos, as it's used throughout the New Testament, is translated as form, image, pattern, and example. Uh, consider just a couple of instances where it's clear that certain elements of Old Testament history were designated to foreshadow New Testament realities. In Romans chapter 5, verses 14 through 21, Paul refers to Adam as a type of him who was to come. In other words, Adam foreshadowed Christ. There is a legitimate connection we are supposed to make between Adam and Christ by means of typology. In Hebrews 8, Verses four and five, the author of Hebrews sets up a contrast between the heavenly high priestly ministry of Jesus and the earthly ministry of human priests. And again, we are to make a legitimate connection from the text. This is what we find in Hebrews chapter eight, verse four. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. <clears throat> They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Why? So that it would be a type. So that it would accurately point to something greater. Uh, one more example, this one from 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 and here we don't find the word type explicitly in the text, but the idea is conveyed by means of a metaphor. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Again, we're talking about typology, which is the foreshadowing of Christ by historical events, people, and institutions and brothers, this goes well beyond the few instances where the word typos is used to describe it. Now, why is understanding typology so important, and especially as it relates to our Old Testament preaching? Well, because the divine design behind typology is meant to magnify the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ which is what we aim to do in every sermon. This is how one <clears throat> theologian puts it. Our heavenly father has, in a sense, 
painted the impression of his son on the canvas of history. Christ has come in the flesh, but Old Testament types preserve historical reflections of him that retain their own particular power to move our hearts and strengthen our faith. Typology adds historical depth to our understanding of the person and work of Christ. Just as a painting augments and interprets certain features of its subject, typology draws our attention to the features of the gospel that God himself meant to accentuate over the course of history. Therefore, the unique value of typology is not lessened by the coming of Christ. If anything, it continues to add to our complete understanding of his person and work as he is revealed in his fullness over the span of both testaments. So, how do we see this in Job? How has our heavenly father painted the impression of his son on the canvas of history through the Old Testament book of Job? So I'm going to give you just a couple of ways. First, there is what one author calls a messianic trajectory throughout the entire book of Job that points us to Christ. There is a messianic trajectory throughout the entire book of Job that points us to Christ. Think about the way the text describes Job. Job is not an average believer who learned to cope with hardship by trusting in the Lord. He was the greatest, most pious man on the earth. He experienced more suffering than any man had ever endured. He is then exalted by God to twice the status he enjoyed before. Here we see the sequence of humiliation and exaltation in its extreme. And in this, there is a shadow of Christ. The severity of Job's experience is only outmatched by one who is at first equal with God, who then became obedient to the point of death, and was subsequently given the name, which is above every name. In fact, go to Philippians 2 and just read that glorious Christ hymn in Philippians 2, and there you will find really the whole message of Job. Second, there is a shadow of Christ in the way Job is described at the very beginning of the book. I made reference to it already, but let's look at it. Job chapter 1. I want you to see it here in the text. Job 1 verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. 
His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. We are presented with only a glimpse of the man from us, but the details we are given are very selective and packed with typological significance. Again, I mentioned a little bit of that already. But without a genealogy, Job takes his place alongside two other patriarchs who clearly foreshadow the coming Savior, Adam and Melchizedek. In verses 6 and following, we find out that Job, as one affirmed by God as blameless and upright, cannot help but attract the attention of the tempter, as with Adam in Genesis 3 and Christ in Matthew 4. Job's life was marked by unprecedented divine favor. In fact, there was no other man like him on the earth. So that even Job's mediation on behalf of others was accepted by God. And this is just the first chapter of the book. Let's skip forward in the book quite a bit for number three. Third, there is a shadow of Christ in the royal and priestly imagery attributed to Job, especially in chapter 29. So go to chapter 29. One commentator writes, Uh, The motif of kingship imbued in Job's character is too overdrawn to reflect historical reality. Instead, it belongs to his typological image. Uh, The main text in which this motif appears has clear connections to the royal messianic imagery of the Old Testament. In chapter 29, Job recollects his former life before his trials began but in such a way that portrays him as a righteous, miracle-working king. Look at verse 11. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then look at verse 21. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. Now, brothers, listen to Psalm 72 
and see if you hear an echo from Job in the psalmist's description of the perfect reign of the messianic king. Psalm 72, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor, that's verse four, skip down to verse 12. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Now consider the priestly imagery in Job. The priestly image first appears in chapter 1, verse 5, as Job makes sacrifices to sanctify his children. It then appears again in chapter 42, when Job, now exalted by God to an even higher status, intercedes on behalf of his accusers. And God's forgiveness depends explicitly on Job's mediation. So look at Job 42. And verse 8. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So brothers, God's word more than suggests that the sacrifices of Job's accusers would only be acceptable if they were first brought to Job and accompanied by his prayers. I think it's noteworthy that the text says twice that God had accepted Job. More literally in the Hebrew that he lifted up the face of Job. This is a reference to all of Job's trials. God had lifted up his face or rescued him from his affliction. The end result is that Job's role as a mediator is affirmed and accepted by God. When Job's face had been lifted up, the immediate effect, according to God, was that his intercession would be deemed effectual on behalf of his accusers. So I want you to hear this carefully. Even though the book of Job began with the image of Job as a sort of perfect priest on behalf of his family, his role as such was refined and exalted through his affliction. Now as we know, the image of intercession being perfected through suffering comes to its climax in the work of Christ. It's a main theme of the book of Hebrews. Christ had to suffer, and as a son, he had to learn obedience through his suffering in order to become, as D.A. Carson says, fully qualified as the perfect high priest that he is. 
Listen to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the typological image of Job as a blameless priest who is refined through suffering, whose cries and tears were heard by God, and his intercession is accepted on behalf of his persecutors. Brothers, this is central to the meaning of the book of Job. And it's a glorious prophetic anticipation of the greater eternal high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much more that we could talk about. But let me leave you with this excellent summary by Christopher Ashe in his commentary on Job. I hope this, just a little brief snapshot, accompanied by Liam's sermon later today, motivates you to dig into this wonderful book and to behold the glories of Christ. I think you have this on your handout. Job, Ash writes, Job is passionately and profoundly about Jesus, whom Job foreshadows both in his blamelessness and in his perseverance through undeserved suffering. As a blameless believer par excellence, Jesus fulfills Job. As a priestly figure who offers sacrifices for his children at the start and his friends at the end, Job foreshadows Jesus, the great high priest. The monstrous ferocity of the beast Leviathan reaches its vicious depths in the life and death of Jesus, who in his passion endures deeper depths and a more solemn and awesome darkness even than Job. The drama the pain and the perplexity of Job reached their climax at the cross of Jesus Christ. In the darkness of God-forsakenness and God-forsakenness of those terrible hours of lonely agony, the sufferings of Job are transcended and fulfilled. And as the blameless believer accused and despised by men, but finally vindicated by God in the resurrection, Jesus fulfills the drama and longings of Job for justification. That's really, really good. And I hope, I hope it motivates you to dig into this Old Testament book, and to mine the treasures that are there, I think you will see Christ in his beauty and his glory. Thank you for listening to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.